Raised in the Bronx, New York, the son of a printer, Alan J. Pakula would become one of the most important filmmakers of the 1960s and 70s. In 1962, as the producer of To Kill a Mockingbird, he earned his first Oscar nomination for Best Picture. In the years to come, Oscar nominations and wins were frequent for his films such as The Sterile Cuckoo, Clute, All the President's Men, Comes a Horseman, and Sophie's Choice. His frequent collaborators included cinematographer Gordon Willis and Nestor Almendros, composers Marvin Hamlish and Michael Small, and the New York post-production teams who he called his family. Well, he's a product of the, you know, 70s filmmaking, like many of those that came from that time period. He fits right in there with the Lamettes and the, you know, certain stuff that Mike did, uh, Nichols and... Arthur Penn. Arthur Penn. He was a quintessential New York storyteller. Yeah. In this episode, re-recording mixer Lee Dichter, supervising sound editors Chick Ciccolini and Ron Bokar, ADR supervisor Deborah Wallach, and music editor Todd Cassow talk about working with Alan Pakula on the films Rollover, Dream Lover, Sophie's Choice, Orphans, and The Devil's Own. I'm your host, Isabel Sederni, and this is Frame by Frame, introducing you to the most influential and respected film professionals working in New York today as a celebration of New York's ongoing contribution to the global film community. Frame by Frame is co-presented by the Motion Picture Editors Guild and Post New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts. Our website is bit.do slash frame by frame, and we can be found on Twitter at at postny. The host for today's episode is Goldcrest. I asked Chick, Lee, Deborah, Ron, and Todd to talk about what to find Alan Pakula as a filmmaker. I think he had such a passion for the characters, for characters. He was character-driven, and, and, and from that, what would they do? And how the, the stories that he chose were of people who had convictions and drew them into deeper and deeper into certain stories. He was a quintessential New York storyteller. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's and, and, the kind of director he was. I mean, he wasn't always New York, but, no, but you know, when he, when he settled down with us... You know, he was telling stories. Yeah, telling stories about people. You know, the New York filmmaking genre. You know, is people more relationships. About narrative people relationships. You know? not, not the California big action films. He really wasn't in, into that. His performance was everything. Everything, yeah. and and he would <laughs> give an uh, an oration of what the scene means. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, I, I just to this day. If I can work with a director who can give half of what he used to yeah. give, I go, boy, you're almost as good as Alan Pakula. Yeah, Alan, Alan was a heavy Alan analyzer. Just he was totally uh, just, and, and he'd give it out. He, and it was like he was almost practicing or preaching it. And and he didn't care if he had to do it once or a hundred times. And it mean, could change. Came from the and, heart. Evol- and it was always evolving. Yeah. So it's not just. You can justify anything. <laughs> I, yeah, I once think, it's all put together. I think he put some, you know, people off. I know he put some producers off. I know he put some talent off. I mean, <laughs> what do you mean? come on, he was nicknamed Alan Peculiar <laughs> by a lot of different people out oh, there. Really? I didn't know oh, that. yeah. Oh, my God. He remembers saying he, his parents wanted him to be a doctor. Yes. And he w- wanted music and art. This was the big thing, but they were just. Pushing, pushing till the yeah. till the last moment. Well, that's yeah. why I think he was so he was so uh, uh, oriented by people and interested in people. What would they do? What did they do in certain situations? Which is it's all psychological choices. Yeah, I, I, Look at the name of the movie, Sophie's Choice. Well, he's a product of the you know '70s filmmaking, like many of those 
that came from that time period. I mean, you know, he he's totally a product of it. Yeah, he fits right in there with the Lamets and the, you know, certain stuff that Mike did, uh, Nichols and Arthur Penn. Arthur Penn. They're know. very proud liberal. Yeah, very proud very liberal. liberal. And yeah. it wasn't that he was a proud liberal. He he just he, he had a, a good distinction of what's right and you wrong. You never said, you never got the sense he was in it for the money. He was, no. you know, enjoying the process. It, I mean, it's strange. I think he's one of the forgotten directors, in a way, that are from New York. I mean, you know, people know, you know, they might know Parallax View. They, everybody knows all the president's men, but, you know, there's... Yeah. They don't know who directed it. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. the you know, the director's side of it, and he, he didn't, he wasn't a flashy guy on that level. But he was very smart and he was an intellect, you know. He, yeah. had he was, he, he was very really smart. Educated, very well educated. Yale, right? I think um, that the people in the film industry, they know who he is. I, I don't, you know, it would be like saying- uh, I, I'm sorry, I'll disagree with you on that. <laughs> There's a lot of people that yeah. don't know who Sidney Lumet is either. It, it's, a, it's a family, we're, we're a, a big family and we know who, who these directors are. Every director that I've worked with, each one is is unique in, in their own right. I asked Chick, Lee, Deborah, Ron, and Todd to talk about how they first got involved with Alan. He came to me. I was working on probably one of the Jim Glickenhaus movies <laughs> back in 1981, I believe. And uh, he approached me and he wanted to know if I would be interested in, in meeting uh, Alan and working with him on the movie Rollover with Jane Fonda and Chris Christopherson, Hume Cronin. And we no, were working uh, over at Sound One uh, at the time. And, and that was actually my first opportunity to work in a major film that, that was a studio movie. He had a problem with Chris Christopherson because Chris had dentures. And whether he was doing the talking or whether he was listening, you'd hear this clicking. And so one of the things that he said that he really would like me to do is to remove as many of the clicks as I possibly can because it's driving him crazy. And at the time, we were working in film, film dialogue in, in 35 uh, stripes. So we literally had to remove sprockets and replace sprockets in order to clean it out. And, of course, we did. We did pretty well, as a matter of fact, I, I have to say. And what I wound up doing is I told the dialogue editors to uh, keep all the sprockets that they... <laughs> And at at the mix, I brought him a bowl. And the bowl, the bowl was filled with the sprockets. That's wonderful. And I said, "Here you go, Alan. Here's your sprocket. Here's your clicks." Yeah. And and uh, he got a kick out of that. He did. He actually brought it up to us when we were working on uh, "See You in the Morning" with Jeff Bridges, because Jeff has a oh. nice smack sound with his like lips all the time and uh-huh. we had to get them all out too and cold, it was like every sink- time <laughs> every time he would start to talk there'd be this yeah. and you'd yeah. have to get Te- rid of it yeah teeth teeth clicks yeah. Te- teeth cold sucking sucking teeth <laughs> <laughs> and Very so um, at that point i was actually finishing up on a project so i had one of my other colleagues uh, greg sheldon as a sound group working on uh, temp mixes. And we were actually doing all these things 
using, instead of a mixing stage, you're using the cutting room, the chem, and dubbers, and laying stuff back and then cutting them into the work track when we had a scene put together. So that, that, was, uh, that was my first introduction working with Alan. And then we wound up doing uh, Sophie's Choice in 83 as well. But I think I think rollover was actually mixed over at Photo Man. It was, if I'm not mistaken. It, it was. And Evan Lottman was his picture editor yeah. on rollover, and I had met Evan earlier. But it was through Evan. I think Evan, the picture editor, has a lot of pull of where you mix a movie and who you mix it with. And he was the one who brought it over. I was pretty sure. And one day, uh, Bill Nisserson, who you know used to. To all the bookings just now, I said, "Listen, we got a call from Alan Bakula's office, and they want to work with you." And you know, Alan was a very, you know, world famous director. He'd done all the President's Men. He had done Clute. He had done, you know, uh, Sterile Cuckoo. He had done a whole list of, of films. And I said, hey, "When?" <laughs> 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 and it was uh, the film Orphans. And uh, so like 86, that's 87, 80 something, something, yeah, middle ages. Well, I know how I got started, and that was through Ron. You hired, I think, it was consenting adults. That's, that's right. the first one that yeah. I worked on. And I got involved with Alan through Evan Lotman as well. My first supervising job was Orphans uh, that I ever did, and you know, it was it was presented to me as a low budget film that Alan has never really worked on a low budget film before, so. You know, he's going to have some trouble here, and uh, we need to control the cost, so we're going to hire you because you're cheap. Because <laughs> you've never done it before, and we can get you inexpensively. You know, and he, I And he loved you, Ron. Well... He loved I, your sound. We, we had a good time, but, yeah. you know, I'll never forget the, the first, you know, moment I had with him in, in Real One, where, um, you know, the Modine character comes home, gets off a bus, runs into the house looking for his, his brother... We had all of this sound. I mean, you could hear dust motes floating in the air. I mean, it was all of this. And Alan kind of like heard it and was appreciative and said, "Look, I want to, I want to like broom that all out. I want it to be quiet. I, I don't, I only want to hear his footsteps. I just want, I just want it to happen." Alan had a method of one scene needed to be quiet. And then the next scene needed to be loud. Kind of. Yeah, he had his rhythms. He actually explained that to me a few times. You know, between you and Lee, both of you said, trust him. You have to learn to trust a director. I mean, they may come up with a completely off-the-wall approach, but go with it and see where it goes. He taught me to trust a director. I mean, it was one of those things. It was just, you know, being, being the first job I did and wondering again if I failed everywhere... You know, it was this level of trust. You have to give the director some trust. And he was a great guy to trust because he, he wasn't demanding. He wasn't obstinate. He wasn't a prick. He was a really nice guy. I, I can say I worked hard on a lot of films, but I think I really worked hard for Alan in ADR. There was always a lot of ADR. But I also had extreme freedom to do things. I mean, it's why... A lot of people that I, directors that I work with often trust me in this situation now because you learn what they are looking for, their sensitivities, what can help improve it. And I felt a lot of freedom with him so I could try things, yeah. also vocally, you know. 
and present them and either they worked or they didn't but you know I didn't just do what I was told so playing with performance there's always adding dialogue something like Devil's Own was changing constantly and then there's all the background stuff that happens and so you're creating atmospheres with you know vocally you know with principal actors it's all about performance it's about when you're editing and there's a scene that was 10 minutes and there was a certain arc and now the scene is two minutes it changes how it should play and he was very sensitive to things like that and you were part of pelican right yeah yeah i mean the group oh in my pelican God, the group was, was amazing yeah the panic scenes all those oh, yeah it was, it was huge. great yeah, and I got to play. You know, we we started just different miking systems, and but it's also we're all collaborators. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're also a team. So like I, you know, yeah. Ron needs something or asks for. Something. I mean, and we yeah, do he, it as a collaborative effort. I think I think from my end, Alan always cared about every project he worked on, and if you know it wasn't coming up to the expectation that he originally may have set for it for himself, he tried, and he worked very very hard to pull off what he wanted to get out of it. Every one of the films he did that way. And I, I've been with other directors where, you know, you know you're working on something that is not going to be received well, and the directors just kind of tune out after a while. I mean, they really know what they've got, so, you know, yeah, just finish it up, okay? See ya, bye. And, you know, you do it. You finish up the film, and, you know, there may be come around for playbacks, but Alan was involved with the finals that we did top to bottom. He wouldn't just watch just playback. He would stick around a lot. The other thing about working with Alan is that if you did your job right, it's not like he accepted incompetence or laziness or any of that kind of thing. But, you know, he did work with good people. Yeah. He always expressed gratitude. Totally. Always expressed yeah. gratitude. And that's often lacking because it, that is comes with the respect as well, yeah. that you could fix something that he was having a problem with, that you could... He was grateful, and he respected your work. Yeah, he'd rant and rave. What a great job you did. Yeah, which sweet. makes you want to work harder. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. what I'm saying, this this way of uh, it was a very nice collaboration. Yeah. You felt it was a collaboration. Yeah, absolutely. And you felt if, if <clears throat> anything were off kilter, you were like, okay. Yeah. He'd get yeah. you time, get to get too. this back on. Yeah. He would always get you time. Oh, yes, to do what you needed. Mm -hmm. yeah. to, to do it right. You know? And and Alan was a gentleman. I was, totally. that, that was, I was oh. going to say that. That's my. I mean, he, it, you know, when he said he didn't like something, it it wasn't an attack. No, not at all. It was a discussion, and it was actually bringing you into his fold to do that. Chick, when you when you worked with him, he was always wearing a suit, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. khakis and a blue blazer. Yep, with a tie. And, uh, Sometimes and a tie. tie. But yeah. he always wore loafers and took them off. He always yes. took his shoes off. It's because he had yeah. stockings. He had yeah. You know he was relaxing when, when his uh, socks came off and he just had the loafers without the socks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Alan was uh, definitely, like you said, a gentleman and very uh, even keel. He did have his emotional upswings and what have you. I mean, I heard him with Evan, you know, him ranting and carrying on about the studio and wanting certain things a certain way. And, um, you know, he would vent, and we got to, to see that. And, and I think that's special for us. I think that being part of that film community, it's great to, to know. I mean, I worked with Ron Howard for a good number of years, and Ron 
very rarely got upset, but every now and again, I'd see him lose it. And all because of these previous screenings that they would have, the studios would insist upon it. And it was uh, through committee that things got made. And there was a time that wasn't the case at all. The director had final say, and that was it. I think that uh, he, he's he's one of those well-rounded, but his his forte is his his dialogue. He's got very good dialogue in his movies. Unfortunately, uh, in terms of the film community, uh, you know where the accolades go, it's not those type of movies. I mean, I thought for sure that Sophie's Choice stood a good chance in terms of sound because of the the design. And, and how it interwove with the dialogue, and it didn't, uh, it didn't even get a nod. Oh, he was a New Yorker by then. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. What do you mean? Well, at that, that time. At that time. New Yorkers yeah. didn't get nominations. You know, you, you no, didn't definitely hear, not. <clears throat> and as a matter of fact, uh, Sophie's Choice was, was a very heavy dialogue film with lots of narratives, and... It was it was big. It was a big production. And after they finished shooting, Alan decided to do the editing in the Hamptons. So they had the cutting rooms all set up in the Hamptons. And we had our cutting rooms in at Sound One. And we commuted to the Hamptons uh, when we had something to show or sit down and have spotting sessions and these voiceovers, which were quite interesting. You know, because uh, watching her transform herself from Meryl Streep to Sophie was pretty remarkable, including putting teeth in her front, you know, front teeth to kind of give her that lispy sound. What was nice about Sophie's Choice, it wasn't a heavy-duty effects film, but yet we did do certain things that, that were not your traditional, for instance, ADR we actually went on location. Much of the movie takes place in Brooklyn in, in a place called the Pink Palace. And it was a Victorian-style house, and we wound up renting it out. We got a, a recordist. Uh, Andy Aaron was the, uh, the the recordist. I don't know if you guys remember him. Oh, yeah. And we went to the, to the house and, and recorded all kinds of things, brought in the actors, and uh, they all shouted out lines. Alan actually wrote them, so it wasn't just ad-libs. And he was, and directed it. He came to the location and re recorded the stuff. Then we went to another location, kind of uh, desolate area up in New York State to record shout-outs from the different Nazis and, and Polish people that were giving direction to the uh, various prisoners as to where to go in, in regards to the train yard. We recorded all sorts of uh, loop group that spoke German and Polish and other languages, and they did the shout-out. So we had that natural exterior sound as opposed to the studio sounds that are manufactured in an ADR stage. So everything was very live. We even did shout-outs in Brooklyn of mothers yelling for their kids out in the street. So we had people like Joanne Laub, Mark's uh, wife, put together a group of ladies, and we had the sound recordists like halfway down the block while these women would shout out all these, you know, Anthony, come home for dinner, you know, your father's going to get you, that kind of thing. And all these things were all sprinkled in. 
layers and layers of different sounds and carefully orchestrated to ne never interfere with the dialogue, which was, uh, which was very important to the, to the movie. You know, one of the things that, that I remember, uh, Stingo and, and Sophie are sitting in a, in a window seat overlooking a kind of a desolate street. And outside you see an ice cream truck. Before she goes into this flashback of memory, we had the sound of the old-fashioned ice cream bells. I went to Good Humor, as a matter of fact, and ordered them. I got somewhere in my, in my uh, studio, I have uh, all these uh, props, and that was one of them. And we'd have them ringing and put it through a lot of echo through Lee and created this kind of memory thing where she hears the sounds and then she goes into her bells. story. The bells. The, the ice bells. Yeah. In real time, and then, and then we put them in reverb for, for, to, to set up a flashback. And she's telling yeah. him the story about what happened to her during the war, with her secrets, slowly come out through the movie. And, and Chick used a lot, you know, we used different transitions, and that was one of them. It was, you know, one of those things that took place in that period of time, you know, and, and ice cream trucks were summertime, it was hot. That just seemed to work. Uh, Alan uh, liked the idea. There were kids running around in the street. A lot of the stuff was all stuff that was off camera. You, 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 so you wanted to make sure that these things were not foreign to people's ears. They immediately could relate to those particular sounds. It was like when uh, they go to the amusement park, all the rides and what have you. It was all real stuff that uh, just kind of embellished the, the visuals. Having the freedom to, to, to go with the sound, I mean, when Sophie had to make her, you know, her choice, it was the most powerful scene I ever worked on in any movie ever. Alan let us go with that one, with that scene. And, and um, Chick and I, we, we went through many, many different sounds that you had put together, Chick, you know, to, to create, help create the terror. I mean, it was terrifying already, but leading up to it, you weren't sure what was going on because it came near the end of the scene about what she actually had to choose. It was choosing one of her children to go this way and the other one to go, to come with her. And the, the layers of effects that he let us go for is just we kept going in to make it more terrifying, more terrifying with the, the screaming and the yelling of the people and the guards and the dog barking. He kept saying, make the dog louder, go for it, go, go for it, go as loud as you can. There was a German Shepherds and, and it, it was terrifying. And I'll never forget when we finally got it, I mean, Chick and I think both of us were crying when she, when the end of the sequence, because she heard the child scream when they pulled her away from her. It was, it was just terrifying. It was. It was really uh, absolutely. But without, you know, Alan gave us the, the go ahead to just don't hold back. This is like I know this is the most awful thing that you're gonna be working on for a long time, <laughs> but you know, go for it. And then we started mixing, and Lee and myself and. Um, you know, other folks uh, sat there and just kind of chiseled away. And the, the favorite part that I had in every mix with him is the, the, like the last day of the mix. He'd always sit behind us. And the last day of the mix, he'd like take the coat off, take his tie off, roll up his sleeves and sit down right next to Lee and I or Richard Portman and I or, you know, Tom Fleischman and I and you know, for the movies that I did with him, and and say, I I just want to be down here with you guys for the final. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, all right, fine. But it was it was that moment where you know he just felt part of the whole finish. 
I don't know. Yeah. It was, yeah, right. it was like dad coming down and sitting with you. Uh, he also had a film. I mean, Sophie's Choice, in, in its original length, it was like four hours and 45 minutes. Oh and he had, to bring it, he had to bring it down to two and a half hours maximum. That was a major undertaking. And, of course, they did. Uh, uh, William Styron was, was upset because he felt that there was a lot of important stuff that was removed, taken out of the story. He, he was a writer that was of the important. Yeah. Yeah. We were working on a film called Dream Lover. Dream yeah. Lover, Dream right. Lover. And, and Dream Lover was another film that, that he loved to play with sound. You know, the story takes place, a, a girl gets attacked. She kind of relives this attack over and over again, winds up losing sleep. And each time that dream occurs, he wanted different things to ha to happen. Sometimes he just wanted certain key effects to 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 play out, and everything else be silent. And and uh, you know because we had everything all individually set up, it, it was an easy thing for him to dial in and dial out music effects, dialogue, whatever. So he he definitely was a a, a director that was. No, he, Mild mannered, but he grew with it all sound. too. He yeah. he grew with sound. I mean, he went from yeah. mono to stereo to five one to you know he he was fine playing with it all. He was uh, yep. He he was actually a director that keyed into sound. I mean, he had an appreciation for what we did. One of the things that he did on uh, Sophie's Choice that I thought was really a nice gesture on his part, <clears throat> the production company was going to only have heads of of departments getting their credit. And uh, which would have meant that my whole sound crew would have not. And uh, I sat down and composed a letter. I didn't want to go to him because you never know what frame of mind a person is going to be in. And my timing was never always <laughs> optimum. So I, I decided to submit a letter. I first went to Evan about it. And uh, because it turned out the picture department was going to get their credits. So I told him what I was going to do. And he said, well, you know, do it. And so I wound up writing this letter. And a couple of days later, he calls me in. And uh, he told me that he talked with the people. And he said that I want this sound crew to get the credits, including the apprentices and, and what have you. And so I was very happy about that. He didn't have to do that, but he did. You know, that happened on Presumed Innocent, too, where we had the same issue, where they were just going to give heads of departments. Actually, not even. They were going to give me a credit, and the rest of the crew wasn't going to get anything. And I, I basically I, I <laughs> walked into Alan and said, you know, can you get my name off it, too? And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, it's the whole crew. I don't want to be just the only one. And, you know, he made sure at that point in time that everybody then got a credit because he didn't even know that they were doing it. He yeah. you know, was really, I mean, it wasn't just us. It was going to be PAs. It was going to be, you know, the Teamsters. Part of them were going to get cut out. I was told at the time, because before I sent my letter to, to Alan, is that the uh, one of the post supervisors said that when you think about the amount of footage yeah. that's added to the film credits that on on the cost factor shipping it's it's astronomical but it, it does it boils down to dollars and cents you know they that's how they they perceive things which it, it boils down to boils down to respect and that's where yeah. alan alan took the does. high road and 
you know. Exactly. Exactly. That's true. I had this experience with him on The Devil's Own. Oh, boy. Where it was a film that was being rewritten daily, both in script and and in editing. And then down the block at my room, musically. And he would come in and spend a whole day, I think, just so he wouldn't have to be in the cutting room. Yeah. We'd cut music together and we'd do things. I just remember this one time he said, make Brad Pitt, I forget the guy's name, make Brad Pitt like we love him. Mm, You know, it's like he's a sweetheart. You know, it's like when it turns, it'll be terrifying and all this and that, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And we did this, I did this incredible uh, uh, temp score on it and, and he's getting ideas from it and going back and telling the picture editors. It was really helping lead the film in, in his final structure. And then he comes in the next day and he goes, okay, let's make him a killer. <laughs> <laughs> Put killer music on it. Uh. We just threw the music out and made it killer music, but that's how he thought, you know? It was really interesting. He, he really viewed the film as a whole to the point where one time in my room, he got going without a script, without any any paperwork, and just got going into what is the first scene, and he said, then the next scene is this, and the next thing is that, and he went through the whole film in his head, and it was like a challenge to him, you know, <laughs> it was really kind of neat. I think that was consenting adults, yeah. a lot a lot of consenting adult stuff, and that, that was a strange picture because... Uh, it really was designed one way, and he was unsure about it. And then Sam Osteen kind of just cut the peanuts out of it and I think took a lot of the guts out of it. Well, that one became a little bit of the beginning of an undoing in, in my way of thinking about Alan because um, Market Research took over. That was a film that he had little control of near yeah, the very which, end. Yeah. And we remember, I, don't, I mean, we previewed in Jersey, three different versions of I it. I remember, night. 20 minutes apart. They were yeah. all 20 for minutes the apart. <laughs> for, the, for the studio execs to get up out of the end of one studio, of one, one theater, and walk over and watch the audience reaction in the next yes. theater, yeah. and get up and yeah. walk over and, wa- and watch that. it. Movie the by the and numbers. You know, it became, it became a process that, you know, I think started to undo the confidence that Alan had. Yeah, and, maybe. you know, it's, it, 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 I mean, it, it took down many directors from the 70s that never had to put up with that before. And right. I think that right, process, right. definitely, that process was, you know, I mean, for me, it started on Consenting Adults. That was the first one that we mm-hmm. did that had that kind of intensity mm-hmm. to it. And it caught him by surprise. Yeah. Um, and it was ended, it ended up being a vote by number. Which one tested better was yeah. the one we ended up going with. And, and it was not nearly as good as... No. no. Right. Uh, and it wasn't original. as good as the original cut we all yeah. saw. But it was, had all these beautiful long pans, and yeah. it's like, we know what we're going to see, but we're going to take our time and seeing it. And, it. and when we do, it's going to be know, even more juicy. There were beautiful storms. And they just cut all the. All and, of, they just you know, went to. It the became middle. all about action and, yeah. and, and, and the momentary uh, action. Which, which is, when you think about it, because marketing is from LA and they're right. not. Right, they're action. Not, uh, narrative. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there there are times we're able to work. That, you know, he wanted me to work heavily with Michael Small on on uh, consenting adults because there were these 
loud storm scenes, and he wanted the effects to carry. He wanted them to be part of it, but he also wanted it to be scored. So, you know, he had Michael and I have a meeting and figure out, okay, who's going to take care of this frequency? Who's going to take care of that frequency? So we, we thought about it because of the way Alan put it together for both Michael and I to, to collaborate, so to speak, on what to do. Uh, so there'd be room in the soundtrack for, for both. For both. At different times, working the music and the effects against each other. So wouldn't compete. Yeah. Alan had final cut on Devil's Zone. I'll never forget that. Did he? Yes, I remember yeah. from the producer saying. Exactly. Yeah, Producers that. were the angriest yeah. people during the final mix. But they also started shooting without a script. They started. Devil Zone is a. There was so much money made on the you know, director and the top two characters. It, it's think, just. Uh, I think it was sixty million right there. Yeah, that was a. Uh, uh, before this. Before yeah. this. Devil Zone was a problem. On a lot of levels, and Alan burdened himself with it. Yeah. I mean, he he did everything he could to make the movie he wanted to make, under a circumstance that, you know, I mean, every every angle, someone threw something up to make it more difficult for him. You know, he he really journeyed it through that, <laughs> in a big yeah. way. And and um, in a lot of ways, um, by the time it gets to us. Near the end of when it's getting th- through us, um, a lot of these disruptive powers have gone off. And he kind of relied on us to say, okay, family, let's yeah. finish this film together. Let's justify it. In the let's, case of Devil's Own, yeah. they didn't go away, they though. Go away. They were there the whole time, all the way through the final. Well, it was there. a tough just, one. Yeah. Well, know. they came in at the end. It was also. a tough one. It was a tough one. Um, well, I know with the music on Devil's Own, the, the first 20 minutes of the film is this uh, Northern Ireland terrorist scene, basically. And uh, we had incredible music on the temp and all this, and James Horner kept writing, kept writing, and just wasn't what Alan wanted. And Alan came in one day, and he just went like, it's going to be silent, no music. Yeah. And he was, he was I, knew, I knew he was disappointed, but he's enthusiastic. Yeah. Because it was a way to do it, you know, yeah. and, and, and we and were we ready. All, you know, we all we went, were yes. All ready we're, with we're, whatever we needed to put in. Whatever you need, yeah. you know, we're happy to do it. So Boy, we took out was, 20 minutes of music. That was a tough one. That was a very yeah. tough one. And then, in his style that he always does, the first piece of music is wonderful, happy family music, you know. <laughs> well, after, after yeah. the terror attack, and the yeah. film yeah. opens with that. Right. that and he'd do that huge. a lot of times. He, he just had this wonderful. You know, it's like uh, how green is my valley type of wonderful music just before, yeah. you know, the shit hits well, when the they, when they, they That was an example, though. When they, <clears throat> but by the time we got to Devil's Own, Alan would, like, try to get me scripts before they would start mm. shooting with the idea that I could maybe beg for some sound effects to get recorded. <laughs> mm. And um, Devil's Own, they sent me the script on, and I read it. Uh, one evening and actually called him and said, wait a minute. And he goes, no, 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 it's not going to be that script. Because literally every f- every fifth page, Brad Pitt was blowing something up. That that character was like going into a, a, a crack den and blowing up the building, going into you know, a, a public school and beating up the principal. I mean, it was just one thing after another that had nothing to do with an Alan Pakula film. I mean, Alan, Alan was very sensitive about violence in films. He was really keyed in. I, I, I remember going out to lunch while we were working on, it might have been Devil's Zone, 
Um, when did Patriot Games come out? It was around that time period, but it was with, yeah. with Harrison Ford. Right. And the poster for Patriot Games was Harrison Ford pointing a gun yeah. right at you, you know, with Patriot Games underneath it. And Alan saw it on the side of a bus and froze and said, oh, no, no, that's, I mean, Harrison probably doesn't even know they're doing that. And, you know, he went back to the office and made a call to Harrison and complained and said, you know, this is not, this is not what you want to show kids. Right. This is not how you want your legacy to be as someone who's promoting, you know, holding firearms like this and, and, and promoting pointing at someone. Um, he was very, very keyed into that. I, I would always get the sense that deep down inside of him were these things that he would then be able to write about or tap into the emotion of whatever he may have been writing. I think a lot of the stuff in his films are his personal experiences uh, or personal emotions. Certainly personal views, yeah. I mean, he really but, but wrote like, a lot like, see you of that, in the yeah. morning, I mean, that's... That's his life, yeah, you know, in a lot of ways. And I just see that a lot in his character development as such. It's, it's sort of like, you know, maybe what hurt him at some point in his life or what he loved at once in life or what he lost. Or I always got that impression that he was totally honest in that he wasn't making it up. It was really coming from his heart, his soul. Yeah. He was a human first. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. He, was, he, was, uh, he was a true, true human. The sound engineer for today's session was Christopher Chivans. In New York, I'm Isabel Siderni, and this is Frame by Frame.